Hi, welcome back to episode two of our new podcast, Hot Take Time, with Pete and John. Okay, this is just two guys in Melbourne talking about watches and stuff that we're interested in. And today we're going to run through a bunch of releases that have come out during uh, January 2023 and give our pretty quick hot takes on those john anything you want to add right now uh no but but well actually yes be prepared for some positivity but there's going to be a little bit of negativity around some of these releases as well i think yeah i think that's true i think that there's some of these releases that we've spoken about when john suggested them as we were getting ready for the discussion i went yes i have strong opinions about that watch so we want to kick it off today we're going to talk about a new blanc pont Yep, uh, so uh, it's timely that we talk about this first because uh, I'm actually wearing, uh, doing a quick, quick wristwatch check, I'm actually wearing a Blancpain 50 Fathoms um, titanium uh, with the brush dial, which was um, uh, released in 2022. Um, so I thought we would start with this one because I, I actually really like Blancpains. I really like 50 Fathoms. Um, they... You know, it is, you know, as everyone may know who's listening, it's one of the uh, earliest dive watches, in fact, potentially the earliest uh, fully sort of integrated dive watch that abides by current standards, more or less. Um, so, big soft spot. I love divers. I love Blanc Pan. I love the story. Um, I like how well it's, you know, how well it's made. And to be honest, the price point's generally pretty good. But I have beef with Blanc Pan because they make. The Bathurst Garfin are 43 mil and a 38. 38 is really small. 43 is a bit too big. The normal 50 Fathoms only comes in a 45 mil. So massive by, by most people's standards. But then usually once a year or a couple of times a year, they'll release a limited edition, whether it's the Ocean Commitment or the No Rads or the Hodinki or whatever. And it'll be in a much nicer case size of 40 uh, 40 mil to 42 mil, which is the latest um, 70th anniversary, uh, which really makes me mad because why don't they just make them in a 40 or a 42 <laughs> mil as a just as a part of their core line? Like, there's obviously different. They always sell out, uh, you know, and everyone talks about it uh, about how good it is to be to have a blanc pun in that size. So. Why not? I, I don't I must, understand. I must admit, I've been in this hobby for about seven years, and I reckon for every year, Blanc Point has released a 50 Fathoms in somewhere around that 40 to 42 uh, millimeters. Everyone's gone nuts for it, absolutely yep. loved it. And then the question for the next month has been, why don't they have a standing? And I think um, what's even more important is the standard 50 Fathoms in 45 millimeters is a huge watch. It's Big. not a small 45. No. It, it's a huge lump of metal on the wrist. Yeah, I don't understand. I must admit, I don't... First off, I agree with everything you just said. I love the 50 Fathoms. I've got a big wrist. I routinely wear... 44, 45 millimeter wrist. Yeah, you've got that JLC diver. That's I've got that large. JLC diver, which is insane. The J JLC master compressor. But um, even on my wrist, that 45 millimeter is huge and is tricky to wear. Um, I would personally love to see them produce a small one, but I don't understand why they don't. Now, I can understand that it's fantastic selling out the special editions, blah, blah, blah. But... I mean, if you do look at that Morgan Stanley report that comes out every year, 
um, and you look where Blancpain sits, they're not right up there in the top 10 making the sorts of money you would think a brand with their kind of history, their kind of gravitas should. Yeah. They're hovering down around the you know number 20, number 25 on the list, not going anywhere with these seemingly obvious things that they could do yeah. to sell a shit tin of watches. And I just don't understand what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's really quite annoying because... You know, I have a lot of friends that really like the 50 Fathoms, uh, both the Bathy Scarf and the Full Fat one, and they just can't pull off the 45 or, you know, whether that's physically or mentally, one of, there's a barrier there around wearing it. Um, I've had uh, the, the Full Fat one uh, a couple of times, and, and I really like the design. It's I've got terrible eyesight, so it's really easy to read in, in almost every configuration. Um, but... It is a big watch, and the 23 mil lug width doesn't make it any easier uh, to find alternative straps to, to make it work as well. So it is a really uh, interesting kind of scenario where Blancpain have found themselves uh, kind of in this space where they've got a lot of they've got a captive audience, I think, but not that their captive audience can't actually partake in their in their product, which is. Uh, which has got to be a shame. I have some, I have some hope though, because for the first time since, well, first of all, that I'm aware of, they finally actually put the the new movement, the thirteen fifteen, which has been around for a while. It's not that new, uh, into this smaller case, which they've never done before. So I'm hopeful that. Now that they've been able to do that, fit the new movement into into a smaller case, that they may, uh, fingers crossed, bring one out in a 40, 42 mil or something like that in the next couple of years. But, uh, you know, it would be amazing if they did because I would, I would have to be like Pokemon and collect them all if that was the case. So, <laughs> yeah, sure. it's, it is um, an interesting watch. Yeah, yeah. So... Pete, uh, let's talk about what, what are you wearing today? Okay, yeah, we sort of skipped over the wrist check. Yeah, so yep. what I'm wearing today is the uh, new Breitling Super Ocean Bronze in 44 millimeters. It's the, it's the, the Breitling Super Ocean Bronzes come in two colorways. They've got the green dial and the brown dial. Breitling, like Seiko, have been on their website doing relying far too much on um, renders, nowhere near enough uh, real-life photos. The renders don't do it any justice. They make the brown dial really flat and uninteresting. It's actually quite um, it's quite a strong degradé fade effect. Yeah, it's really effect. nice. It's, it's a, it comes across, it's a much more kind of smoky tobacco colour, um, and I love it. It is a bronze watch. I've had that now for about two months. Got some nice patina going. Yeah, it's getting a nice patina. It's, it's, a, it's a gentle fade. It's kind of just darkening. Um, and you can clearly tell where my fatty fingers get to because it's all rubbed clean on some parts. And before anyone, uh, just, just so we're all thinking it, uh, the bezel is not centered again. Okay, guys. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know if Pete does this on purpose just before I get here, just changes the bezel on all his watches, but it is like at like the, about six minutes and I, I just, I have to give it back. But, <laughs> but the watch itself is actually really cool. And to be honest, um, when when this line first came out, I wasn't sure about them because, you know, I was I'm I'm actually a reasonable fan of Breitling. I've I've owned a lot, um, and 
when they said that they were refreshing the Super Ocean series, so not the Heritage, but the base Super Ocean, I was really excited because I thought, oh, well, that's been out for a while. Um, I thought it was overdue for a uh, for a kind of a, to put the new the Kinesi movement, the, the Tudor movement in there and, and basically get it all in-house. Um, but I'm also kind of glad they didn't do that because the pricing has remained affordable. Uh, they would have would have had to tack on probably another 10, 15, 20% to go in-house, I would say. Um, so it's actually a pretty well-done piece. Yeah, I think so. I think they have actually been creeping the prices up a little bit, and that's probably a whole topic for another day. Um, there's all sorts of rumours about what Breitling's doing with going in for an in-house movement. Um, I have heard from um, one, one guy I was talking to, Fred Mendelbaum, the big super collector of Breitling, that if Breitling does come out with a, a new in-house movement, one of the criteria of that is it's got to have the same, if you like, envelope as an ETA 2824. Yeah. So the idea being that unlike the Kinesi movement, that original one that they make available to everyone, which is huge, it can't go into anything less than about, a, and it's really thick. Um, the idea of the new movement is that it can just drop into, if you're using a Salida movement now, it will just drop straight in, um, which is, lets them make them a lot thinner. I think this watch is um, 12 millimeters thick or something, which yeah, you could never thin. do with the, yeah. with the Kinesi movement, that they make available to customers. I think it's really important to realize that um, the thinner movement that they make available for like the 58 and everything. Not available. That's not available to yep. anyone that's not a partner of Kinesi. Oh, so, so Chanel gets it. So Chanel gets it yep. and yep. Uh, Tudor get it. They're yep. the only people who get that smaller movement. Yep. But even them, they only get a base three-hander. There is no GMT movement. There's no no complications. And that's actually sort of one of the dark sides of when movement, when companies do invest so much in their new movements. If you ever notice all the fun bits of movements go away. They go and um, Nomos has done this. They put all that money into making a new watch and making a new movement and it's consumed all their R&D and they haven't put out a new design in years because they've got no money. Yeah. Tudor goes and puts out the, you know, the Kinesi movements and they're all really basic three-handers, one GMT movement, nothing else on top of that. This is, it's a real... Yeah, one of the benefits of going with an ETA movement is sure the base movement might be a bit plain, but you can do like um, uh, Mont Blanc with the eighteen fifty eight geosphere, and you can really play with it. You yeah, can stick yeah. all sorts of modules on top of it and have all sorts of fun. There's a lot of uh, uh, interesting watches that have pretty mundane off the shelf movements. Um, if anyone listening is familiar with the Konstantin Chankin, the the Joker watch, yeah. that's actually just an ETA movement with a module on top. Um, the, re the resonance, uh, the oil yeah, field thing. That's another module. Couldn't do that with uh, an in-house yeah, movement. 7750, um, you know, there's a small mic Austrian micro brand, Habring, uh, which some of you might be might be familiar with. Um, Habring uses a, uh, a modified 7750 of all things in one of their watches, which is not even a chronograph. It's just a, it's a dead seconds uh, three-hander. Um, and by dead seconds, it, it ticks like a quartz watch, but it's actually an automatic. Um and that's uses a 7750. Uh, Panerai has used 7750s in their three-hander date movements for a long uh, watches for a long time. Um, so there's there's you know there's actually a lot of options and a lot of uh, things you can do with these off-the-shelf movements. So I think you know I think one question to ask you know for those of you listening to give us some feedback on this if you want to hear 
uh, maybe some more detail on it. But what are your thoughts around you know in-house movements? Do you think that they're that they're worth the money? That they're worth more than you know? Would you pay a lot extra for an in-house movement versus a off-the-shelf movement? Do you like the reliability uh, of the off-the-shelf movement? You know, the fact that you can get them pretty much serviced anywhere uh, by any watchmaker that that you know understands movements at all really um rather than having to take them back to the manufacturer to yeah or and the other question i'd be interested in is if your favorite brand is making a watch right now would you prefer them to use a basic workhorse movement bank that r&d if you like and then spend that on more effort in the design or adding some cool modules over the top or would you prefer a more vanilla design a more straightforward kind of look but have the knowledge that there's an in-house movement inside that watch Actually, yeah, that's a good question so definitely give some feedback on that but that's also a fantastic segue into our next release uh, so talking about uh, maybe not having enough money in the design budget um, or potentially just being lazy so Amiga has just in the last couple of days released a new Speedmaster Super Racing chronograph with the new uh coaxial movement that features the the spirate spirate uh which uh has a has a uh, rated accuracy of zero to plus two seconds a day now which is impressive certainly impressive in its own round in, a, in its own um uh way and it also looks like this has a uh so not only does it have a chronograph but it also has a date and it has a second time zone by the looks of it What's that? What's that right-hand subdial? Looks like it's got a separate twelve-hour counter. I think it's um, no. I think it's just minutes and yeah, central central seconds. So you probably don't have a running seconds. So I'm going to go central seconds, and then minutes, hours. Minutes on the left, hours on the right. But the hours has two hands. Has a small oh. hand and a big hand. Oh, there you go. Okay, so let's have a look at the functions here. If you just expand that functions uh, tab. Just up a little bit. Oh. So we're just looking at this on the screen, oh, just below the video, just below the video, um, on the on the left hand side. So the functions oh, thing. Okay. So what is? Oh yeah. So it does oh, have a second, second time zone. Okay. So oh. that's actually quite interesting because. Oh okay. Not many I take speedies, that back. Not many speedies have a second time zone, but Amiga, please. I am. I love the Speedmaster. I've owned a few versions of Speedmaster, and I do honestly believe it is one of those watches that, as a as a watch collector, you probably should own at some point in your journey right um and if and there is a case to say that if you could only have you know one or two watches that it could very well be one of those one or two watches um but amiga for the love of god stop flogging a dead horse you just there are so many speedmaster versions throughout the years um when you go into an amiga ad these days you basically have two watches you know, uh, uh, Seamasters and all variations thereof. And I'm kind of including the Aquaterra in that because there was a time when the Aquaterra was actually branded a Seamaster Aquaterra. So, you know, I'm including that in there. It still is. Okay. Still yep. is. Yep. Okay. So there you go. So I'm, I'm broadly including that. Now, we could probably say that that is a separate line. So let's call it three lines. You've got the Seamaster, the Aquaterra, and then there is just... 50 Amiga uh, speedies of different, you know, there's automatic ones, there's the 57s, there's the Moonwatch, there's the um, smaller versions, there's the big version like the racing. I mean, the, the technology in this is interesting. You know, the, the, the accuracy is obviously very interesting. But 
did we need another Speedmaster? Yeah, look, and this is this watch for me, the Speedy Super Racing Chronograph, sums up the best and worst of Omega in the one watch. Mm. I love the innovation. I loved what they were doing. Remember back when they did the ultralight and they did that kind of titanium base? They did the titanium movement plate and all that sort of thing. Love that. I love the ultra deep. I, I do like them chasing that kind of development stuff. So from that point of view, this thing, finding a way to be able to regulate a silicon hairspring um, and get it so accurate, great, fantastic. Well done, Omega. But I'm completely with you, John. The worst of this is Omega has, I'm not sure if it's no imagination or they're just deathly afraid of trying to sell anything that's not a Seamaster or a Speedmaster. It's like... And, and what's even more ridiculous is if you dive into and read the whole press release about this watch, they'll talk about how one of the big benefits of the silicon escapement is that it's anti-magnetic and so it throws back. And the reason why it's got certain colors and everything is because it's emblematic of the Aquaterra that they brought out like 15 years ago that had the first uh, like... The first uh, 15,000 Yeah, gauss. the first 15,000 yep. gauss thing. Which is a very cool watch. Which is a very cool watch. And they did it, and so they've used all the color schemes. But why, if you're throwing back to one of your most historic Aquaterras, do you use a Speedmaster? And it's like Speedmaster and Seamaster are the brand, are the are the watch lines that ate a brand. Yeah. It's like Omega doesn't even really exist anymore. It's Speedmaster and uh, Speedmaster and Seamaster. Yeah. And like no one cares about the Globemaster. I actually think Globemaster is a, a really nice watch and a really good date just alternative, I guess, in, in that way. But, I mean, when was the last time anyone saw a Globemaster out in the wild? Yeah, they just... Fairly rare. It's just... It seems to me like it's this run... I can imagine that someone in marketing said, we can sell a Speedmaster tomorrow. Where, whereas if I have to, like, build this advertising campaign around an Aquaterra... Um, then maybe this will sell, but maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be a slower burn. It's going to be harder work. And my point to Omega, if I was in that meeting, is yes, that is the point. It's going to be harder. Mm. But right now, you're trying to sell two watches. You're trying to sell a Seamaster or a Speedmaster. And you're competing as Rolex, which is selling... A selling what a Submariner and a Milgauss and an Air King and a Datejust and a Daytona Skydweller. They've got all this. You've yeah. you're taking two what two watches into that gunfight. Yeah, you know they should have. This was a fantastic opportunity for them to. And as as you said, um, sort of you, the the Aquaterra gets lost. Like where is it inside the the? Uh, well, it's also yeah the catalog. And it's not just the Aquaterra. It's also the Planet Ocean, which deserves its own. Line, but it's technically a Seamaster Planet Ocean. Absolutely, um, you know that really that could have easily been a you know a, 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 like a Rolex Deep Sea um, Sea Dweller um, brand recognition, but it doesn't have it because everyone it, you know it's kind of put together with the Seamasters, which Absol is a Submariner competitor. Absolutely, so, yeah, yeah. So this watch, this technology, absolutely fantastic. The colorways and the throwback to the old Aquaterra, absolutely fantastic. But why, for God's sake, didn't they make this an Aquaterra and use this as the perfect example, the, the ideal time to say, you know what? We're making the Aquaterra a standalone collection. It's no longer part 
of the Seamaster range in commemoration of its importance in the role, blah, blah, blah. You know, you start building your story. Here it is, a new collection all of its own. Yeah, and, uh, you know, guys, 44.25 millimetres. It's, you know, it's seven, it's, it's 0.75 a millimeter smaller than the Blanc Pan that we were talking about just before. Uh, it's you know f- nearly 15 mil thick. I think it's about 14 and a half yeah. something thick. I mean, it's a big watch, and I think it's not a watch that is going to suit everyone's wrist. Um, it's not really going to suit everyone's uh, taste either, given that it's a you know it's obviously got that uh, quite a bit of this sort of you know lemon yellow uh, all, all throughout the dial. Uh, you know, so that relegates it to a very much a casual wear watch, uh, which is great. But forty four mil, you know, you're probably cutting out fifty percent of the market, if not more. Um, and you know, and the price, so eleven thousand nine hundred forty USD. Uh, so rough translation to me, that says about yeah, about sixteen to eighteen grand Australian. Um, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. I can only I can only think. Maybe what the reason they did this is because they simply can't make a lot of these hairsprings. Maybe. And so what they want to do is get it out in the market. They want to make the big splash, but they don't want to run the risk of having to like make 10,000 of them. So you stick it in a 45 millimeter, 18, you know, $18,000 watch and you sort of like um, Rolex in that big chunky yeah. 20 millimeter thick thing. Yeah. You know, you don't have to, you're not running much of a risk. Yeah, but look, the other thing is uh, zero plus two seconds a day, extremely impressive. But let's talk about their biggest competitor, right? I would say Mega's biggest competitor is Rolex, right? In terms of market placement, in terms of pricing generally. Um, And Rolex has been sitting at minus two plus two for the last, as their official uh, superlative chronometer standard for years now, you know, decades. Uh, And ever since the, the, you know, sort of five, six years ago, they've started including parachrom uh, hairsprings in their watches, which basically means they're as close to being anti-magnetic as, as Amiga. I mean, maybe not tested quite to the same amount of gauss, but for your average person that is wearing one of these watches, whether it's an Amiga or a Rolex, it's probably anti-magnetic enough. So, you know, so then the question says to me, well, has Amiga differentiated itself enough from its competition, even with this new technology, uh, to you know, for this design, for this release to be relevant. Um, so yeah, maybe leave us a feedback. Maybe you're a diehard Speedmaster line fan, and you think this is a great addition. Uh, maybe you particularly like the Speedmaster Racing, which is obviously targeting a, a different industry, a different um, collector base to the to the Moonwatch. Uh, but yeah, I mean, tell us what you think because, quite frankly, I if I see one more Speedmaster this year, one more Speedmaster release. I, I'm going to lose it. I think it's just well. Accurate. You know you're going to lose it because there's going to be yeah. way more yeah. than yeah. one more Speedmaster. Yeah, that's, that's true. Okay, so moving from one classic line that we've probably heard way too much about to another classic line that some people think we've heard way too much about. How about the new Zenith Defy? We'll start with the revival one they've got here. Their throwback to their original watch from I. I think it was 1969, might have been 68, might have been 70. Whatever in, the important thing is, pre-Royal Oak is the single yes. most important date on this watch. What's your thoughts on this, John? Um, look, I quite 
quite like Zenith. Uh, I, I think Zenith are a pretty cool brand. Uh, if, you, if we're talking technology like we were talking about before, they've had some great technology in their time. The Alpha Mirror movement stands up as being one of the you know, iconic chronograph movements of, of, of you know, the last 100 years. Um, and also having been used by a number of other brands, including Rolex in their uh, very popular Daytona. Uh, but, uh, and there is a big but, uh, I'm looking at this Defy revival here and I can't help but feel that too many of these brands are just going back into their back catalogs and looking backwards instead of looking forwards. Now, I don't have an issue with, re with reissues. I, I, Alpine Eagle, for example, uh, by Chopard, I re really like that watch. I have one. It's great. Uh, really great reissue. Um, uh, and and you know, there's a lot of substance behind the new model. Um, but Zenith has been doing a lot of revivals lately. Uh, you know, they have revived a number of chronographs. Um, they've revived, uh, you know, this one here, the Defy revival. And I think the thing that confuses me again is that uh, let's talk about uh, product recognition for a second. So right now you've got the Zenith Defy, just, you know, multiple distinct lines of the Defy kind of lineup. And I think this particular one, it's a bit confusing to me because uh, I'm not really sure where they're going with it. It's, it's the, the the model that this is based on wasn't terribly popular, you know. Like it, it okay, it was okay, but it wasn't terribly popular. It was and it was period time, like for the for the time it was meant to come out. The, the, the design language does speak to that time, but I look at this now and I just can't, I just can't like it. I'm, yeah, I find it really difficult. I, I, my personal take on the Defy Revival is that in a sense, it's almost like I, my feeling about this, and I could be reading way too much into Zenith here, but my feeling on this is they almost released this, and, and I, I, I sort of gave a clue in my introduction to this. I think this has been released purely to minimize the ability of people to look at their newer ones and say you are homaging the Royal Oak. Okay, I think yeah, the that's, that's a good point. I think yeah. the number one purpose of the Defy is the Defy revival is to say we had semi-integrated bracelets, we had you know geometrically shaped, rectilinearly shaped uh, cases three years before Gerald Genta was even given the commission. We own this space. So anyone thinking that you're looking at the new the newer, like um, oh, the Sky something or other, I can't remember what it's Skyline. called. Skyline. The Skyline, yep. thinking that it reminds you of the Royal Oak. You can just go bugger off because we own this space. And that's what I think this is all about. And if you look at the Skyline, I actually think that's a massive troll of the um, the Royal Oak. If you really dive into it, it's like the Royal Oak's got that patisserie dial where the, everything sort of comes up. And then the skyline has the dial where it's blue, but everything's kind of inverted. Yeah. Um, the original one, the original Royal Oak didn't have an in-house movement. It used a JLC movement. And so Zenith very carefully made sure, even though it's not a chronograph, you use the El Primero, the most famous movement associated with Zenith ever. With an odd beat rate. With a, with an odd, so beat odd, rate. odd second rate, whatever. Well, and then, whatever in fact, and then and then the killer blow that makes me think it was a massive troll is the first uh, Royal Oaks didn't come with a, sense, a central seconds. There was no indicator at all. 
So what did Zenith do? They gave you a seconds indicator, but gave you a 10 second timer that was impossible totally to use. Useless. Totally, totally useless. useless, but clearly there, yeah. spinning away really hard. The other thing that, that I think gets me about revival pieces in a way, and, and this is more of a personal thing, is that if you're reviving something from your back catalogue, uh, I think it really only makes sense if, for, you know, in, on an, in, a, in kind of two different ways. One is if that back catalog item is no longer, like you can't find that on the vintage market um, at a reasonable price, which is quite often the case with a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, re recreations, right? So like um, take Blancpain, for example, every time, if you want to find an original 40 mil sized, uh, you know, ish sized Blancpain from, the 50s and 60s, uh, they're arm and a leg now, right? It's virtually impossible to get in good condition. Um, so that makes sense. So if you want the, uh, a, a 50 phasm that size, uh, you know, buying new, even if it's a little, you know, a bit expensive, is probably still going to be cheaper than buy vintage, and you don't get any of the headache. Uh, and the second part of it, part of it is that, in my opinion, needs to have had some, not necessarily be popular, but needed to have something really kind of going for it. So I'm looking at this Zenith now and you can find the vintage versions of these for not a lot of money, um, certainly less than the 7,500 USD that they're asking for a new. So then I kind of look and go, if I really wanted the vintage feel, I would just buy the vintage version. Yeah, but I think there are a lot of people who are really terrified of vintage watches and they'd, yeah, they'd much rather true. buy a new one. And I think the other point is, and I agree with you, I think sometimes you feel like people are issuing reissuing going back into the archives and doing a, a reissue because they'd simply run out of other ideas they didn't know what else to do i must admit i'll give the defy revival a bit of a pass because as i said i think it kind of has a point um even if it wasn't necessary to sell this watch it was about messaging for the rest of their 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 uh, catalog i think brightling's doing something interesting they're doing a lot of going back to their old stuff now and i think they're doing that as a way of kind of deliberately resetting the brand um and and again it's on one hand even as a brightling fan i do kind of wish that at least give me one brand new contemporary doing nothing but looking forward collection but i do understand oh, endurance yeah good point i always forget endurance? that uh that's new yeah uh where well, you know they, they've never made that before uh I guess the aerospace has always been kind of. I mean, it's new, relatively. I new think. Tech. I think everything's hanging on what happens with the next aerospace. Yeah. The big rumor is that there's an aerospace coming um, this year. If we get one that looks like a throwback to the late '80s, early '90s version, I'll be a little bit disappointed. It's too soon. It's too soon to revive a watch that's really only been around for for you know. I think you, you still there's still so much to look forward to. That I don't feel like you need to start looking back yet. You know? I think if I you've think... got, if you're making like a, what do they call it? Super quartz, all singing, all dancing. The whole point of that watch is to never look back. Yeah. Is to be just constantly looking forward. So yeah. I really hope they do that. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see. I, I suspect there'll be a new Avenger at some stage. That collection's getting a bit old now. It is, yeah. I would love to see. And again, the Avengers are a watch that was created in the late 80s, early 90s. I'd love them to just say that's going to be our forward looking piece as well. We're never going to do a revival on that. It's always going to be something really out there and new looking. Yeah. So they're the two, you know, like 
I'd probably join the hordes and if they wanted to say, we're going to take the Navitimer in a new and contemporary direction, I'd probably say, yeah, look, no, don't do that. Actually, the Navitimer is an interesting one for Brightlink because they've actually managed to do that quite well. You know, that's probably one of their, I would say, their most iconic model. Uh, you know, you can see a Navitimer, spot a Navitimer from across the, across the room. And... You know, last year they brought out the the different coloured navy timers with the with the dial matching bezel colours and all that kind of stuff. They weren't really my cup of tea because I prefer the original navy timer look, like the the panda style look. But it, you know, they've done it quite well in the sense that they've kept, you know, one of their historic, uh, very popular lines intact and added to it rather than you know creating another reissue. Now they did do it with the eight oh six not not long before, but the eight oh six was a you know was a limited release and they didn't make many of them. Um that's I think that's the way to do a revival to be honest. Make it limited, make it a something that you're not just saying you know, you're not doing what what sort of everyone is thinking, which is oh, we've run out of ideas and we need to start reviving something else to keep uh to keep the product line there. But instead what you're doing is saying we, we, we haven't run out of ideas, but we can say this was a good idea then, it's still a good idea now, and we want to give people the opportunity to buy a new one of these if they want to, you know, and we're only going to make 500 of them. This isn't a cash grab necessarily, but it, what it is is a establishing, you know, our, our brand as a historical brand, like, you know, like kind of what you're saying that Zenith may be trying to do with this Defy, but they haven't made it limited, and it's going to be standard stock, which means what will happen is, you know, this thing will be forgotten about because um, there's no, there's, there's not that layer of collectability about it, uh, you know, moving forward. If they made it this limited and maybe even with a case back art or something that they kind of reflected the original design or maybe it was stamped with a date of the original, something that made it kind of like a, you know, you know a, a sort of a limited collector's piece, I think I'd be really on board with it. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it will be... Um interesting to see where we go with a lot of the historic revivals too because increasingly you're seeing like the trends from the 1970s becoming more and more popular now and so you're going to be seeing a lot of like this is a the the, the defy is a revival from as i said i think the late very very late 60s um as we start as the trend starts moving forward into the 70s and then beyond that into the 80s then that point we were talking about before about people doing revivals of watches that we remember as kids is going to start coming out more and more. You know, A, we're going to start feeling really old <laughs> because what do you mean someone's done a revival of the Casio FW91? Um, but yeah, there's going to, we're going to start seeing watches that we remember coming out new being revived. And it'll be interesting to see how we we feel about that and how does the community respond? Yeah, that will be interesting. And I think the, the, the counterpoint that from a business perspective, you've got all these people that um, grew up in, like you said, the 80s, 90s, uh, looking at these sort of watches, you know, if they were into watches at that point, looking at these things that at that point they couldn't afford because they were teenagers or younger. Now, most of those people are very established in their careers and not necessarily that all of them are rich, but there's definitely going to be, they're moving, they're, they're in, already in or moving into a phase of their life where they can start treating themselves with luxuries if they haven't already. Uh, so there is a bit of a nostalgia play there as well, because, you know, if you put something in front of me that, you know, I remember fondly as a child um, and say, hey, here's an opportunity for you to basically buy that thing that you've coveted. Uh, there's definitely 
uh, there's definitely a play in that for sure. Um, so you know, I, I wouldn't be I mean, everything comes. I mean, I would consider watches as a subset of fashion in, in a lot of instances, and fashion does come around. Yeah, you know, baggy pants are back. <laughs> well, that right? that thought you you raised about the idea that you know the kids of the eighties and the nineties are now grown up, and you know some of them bought houses and sold them and have got you know money now. Um, a lot of people are saying that's where the, that tag with the tourbillon and the, the Mario Kart tourbillon oh, yeah. came from. Yeah. You know, that was about saying saying to you know, like investment bankers and real estate agents and, and people that made money that way, remember that game you played and you've got all this money now, spend 25K on a tag Hoyer. Yeah. I mean, that, that, w- that is a pretty fun watch, I must say. Um, and I was honestly surprised when I had a look at them the other day that they're actually trading for huge amounts on the secondary market, um, which was interesting for me because that's not normally something that tag ends up doing, um, any <laughs> tag. Uh, but that but that was legitimately fun, um, and I think the other thing about that one is it wasn't, um, it was nostalgic, but not in the sense of the actual watch bringing the nostalgia. It was the art behind the dial, the art, you know. That was being represented on the dial that actually brought back the soldier, which to me is actually a, an extremely interesting way of, um, you know, of going down that path of actually bringing nostalgia to to the fan base. Um, so I'm I it's not my cup of tea. I firstly I wouldn't probably spend that much money on on a on a tag, and secondly I I wasn't a huge fan of Super Mario, um, but you know. It's it's a it's yeah. a pretty good integ- it's a really well integrated design. I was actually in exactly that same position of saying it was it was clearly not a watch for me. I didn't personally love it. I didn't feel my my credit card hand twitching. I didn't feel my mouse fingers going. Yeah, you know, like I'm going to order this one. But I did find myself thinking, you know, golf clap, good, good. Good choice. Nicely done. This is going to do well. And I hadn't been following on a secondary market, but I'm unsurprised to hear that it is doing okay. Speaking of nostalgia, but of a completely different kind, what do you reckon about the new Classic Fusion original, the throwbacks to the early 80s Hublots that we got um, in three sizes? I think we got 36, 38, and a 42 or something. Or no, it was a 33, 38, 42 or something. Yeah, uh, I I like it. I like it. Uh, look, I actually don't. I know there's a Hublot is another one of those dividing brands that did, seems to divide this hobby quite a lot. Um, I think you know some people think that they're a bit a bit garish, um, you know, a bit over the top, uh, you know, worn by uh, you know by people that watch collectors don't think I watch collectors, but. I actually quite like this uh, original version. I, actually, I'll be honest. I actually inquired about it uh, very casually uh, at um, at one of the stores in in town um, to see what 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 it would be like when it came out. So, I actually think it's really cool. I think the Hublot case design has always been pretty very cool, very modern. Um, and I think as long as you know the the watch. The watch itself, I think I look at that and I think it's really clean design. I really like the clean dial, uh, the fact that there's nothing on there. Um, I like the discrete match date window uh, and they're, they're reasonably proportioned um, if, you know, across the sizes. So personally, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Uh, I think 
you know, I'd definitely be interested in looking at the black dial and in you know in steel as maybe not something I would necessarily buy, but I would definitely be interested in having a look at it. I don't think it's the worst thing that they've ever done, if I'm honest. Yeah, I'm actually a bit of a secret Hublot fan. I've um, possibly it's just because. I very quickly got bored with people just consistently going through those kind of 1950s and early 60s designs and seeing the same thing over and over again. I think that it's it's funny. I've because I'm just a buyer and almost never a seller. The the, the massive hit you take on the re- resale market hasn't really been doesn't really concern me much for Hublot. Um and. I suppose I just always see them as be, being quite kind of forward-looking, almost optimistic watches. And so I've always kind of liked the sense of fun that they bring. Um, the classic, the original classic Fusion, it's a nice watch. I quite like it. It's going to be well-made. Um, if I was going to go for one, the, the classic Fusion um, case at all, if I was going to go for this watch, I'd definitely be looking at one of the Orlinsky versions. I really like oh, those yeah. in the titanium. Oh, very, sorry, not titanium. Very angular. Ceramic. Yeah, in ceramic. So I'd be definitely looking at one of those. Unfortunately, I did also have a look at one of those in one of our ADs, and um, it's everything I'd hoped for, um, except the discount was nowhere near what I'd hoped for. So it, they are expensive. Um, I'm not going to try and defend Ublo's prices. They are expensive watches. But yeah. um, no, I'm I... just looking at. So I'm just looking at the Hublo now. So the original uh, classic. So the original classic fusion in titanium. So it doesn't look like it comes in. Uh, does it come in steel? I'm just trying to look for it now. There might might also be steel. Anyway, it's it's actually not. Uh, unreasonably priced. So in titanium, in the 42 mil, which is the size that I'd be looking at, it comes in at 11.5, so $11,500 in the 42. Now, I think as far as luxury watches go, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's unfairly priced, uh, especially in titanium. But, okay, I do have a small beef with, um, with previous, uh, with previous, Hublot. So uh, the classic fusions have always had in both chrono form and um, the standard uh, three-hander form, uh, basically ETA 2824s or 2892s. And in that sense, you know, we we're talking about before, even in that sense, I'm not that worried about it. Um, you know, I think it's perfectly okay to have a non-in-house movement. I think even at 10,000, that's not unheard of. There are other you know, watches circuit that price that have uh, ETA movement. So that's kind of okay with me. But they ne- they didn't, they never even bothered to decorate it properly. So I think, you know, like, like Pete was saying earlier today, there's a lot you can do with a 2824 or 2896 or 2892, whatever. You know, you can get them well decorated out of out of ETA themselves if you buy the top grade or the, 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 the cost grade. Uh, but you can also do decorating yourself like Breitling, uh, do with a lot of their ETA movements. Uh, Tudor uh, famously did a lot of decorating on their uh, ETA movements they used, um, like in the in the Black Bay uh, non-diver. Um, so it really kind of annoyed me that that Hublot kind of never really didn't really seem to bother um, with with doing that, and that never really uh, made sense to me. So so I'm wondering. So looking at the this classic fusion here. 
Just doing a quick look at the... I'm uh, pretty sure they still use an ETA base, and I'm almost certain that if you were to open the case back, yeah. oh, it would be... An, it's not even an ETA anymore. It's, it's a Salita. It's a Salita SW300 for $11,500. Yeah. So, so this is... And, and it was funny. As soon as we started talking about Hublot, at some point, this becomes the discussion yeah. about how much are you prepared to pay for what is probably going to be an undecorated pretty all they do is slap on a rotor that's yeah. pretty much all they do they... uh you know and and it's not that hublot is not even capable because they have a wide range of fantastic in-house movements the mecha 10 is fantastic uh you know their chronograph movements are, uh, which are sourced from their sister company lvmh uh, uh sorry um, zenith are also fantastic um so and zenith already has uh, the Defy movement. They've got uh, the Elite. The elite yeah. yeah. Um, which they could share with Hublot uh, at the same price, but they don't. And so then what you're really paying for with a Hublot, and, you, and as long as you understand this, it's okay, you just got to understand that what you're paying for with a Hublot is the unique, well, pr relatively unique design. Some people might say it looks a little bit like a Royal Oak. I don't really think so. I think it's fairly unique. Um, and... If you like the forward-thinking nature of the brand itself, um, you're not buying the entry-level series for the movement. Um, I think that's that's kind of where you end up. Yeah, I think with Hublot especially, at the, and you're really important to focus on that entry-level. At the entry-level, they just throw whatever movement they can get yeah. in there. And I think as a watchmaker... I can almost imagine, you know, like the senior watchmaker at Hublot saying, have you seen our big, have you seen our high-end stuff? Have you seen the stuff that we can make there? You know what? We've got bugger all else to prove. I don't need to make a basic three-hander to prove to you I know how to make watches. And I can kind of get that, except don't charge me. And we're on the screen now, I've got the Orlinsky Magic Black, which is the watch I'd really love to get. Um, and it is ceramic, and that's always going to drive the price up, and it is a unique design with the Orlinsky dial. But I'm still struggling to pay twenty grand for that watch. That's a lot of money. I mean, $20,000 gives you... It, there's a lot of options at that price range. Yeah. So if you start looking at indies, there's a lot of value there. Um, like, for example, Horage, you can get a... Uh, um, a micro rotor movement for, for, for under that, for about 10. True. You know, um, you can get... Uh, there's a whole bunch of different micro movement rotors uh, movements out there that you can get for that money. You're only about five to ten grand off. I mean, that's a lot of money still, but you're but you're not that far off a Tag Heuer Torby like we we're talking about before, which is a Swiss chronograph tourbillon for you know about thirty thousand or a little bit less if you get a discount. Um, you know, there's a lot of value in that price range, and like even looking at Blanc Pan, you can get a fifty fathoms. Full fat with their with their in-house uh, 120 20 hour power reserve in titanium for just on twenty thousand dollars as well. So you know, you know, so I think that's the biggest criticism I have of Hublot. I think they actually make a, a, a good looking watch. Uh, I have no problem with it. The sizing works for me, and the fact that they give you multiple size options across most of their models is good. Uh, but the pricing with what you get movement wise, and arguably that's like saying, well, this car looks really nice, but it has a one point three liter engine from a you know, 1990s uh, Mirage. Uh, you know, but you want me to charge me eighty grand for it? It doesn't quite work, you know. So, yeah. um, well, in fact, it's funny as I'm as as you were talking, I'm quickly scanning around the Ublo website, 
and Ublo themselves show what bad value that like Orwinski is, because as you said, that was nineteen thousand bucks. Now, again, I'm about no to, bracelet either, mind you. No bracelet either. Now I am jumping fourteen thousand dollars, but once I'm jumping from nineteen to thirty something, um, I reckon I'm close enough to same in the same ballpark. For that extra ten grand, I can get um, an Unico powered, so totally in house, big bang chronograph in titanium with a bracelet, um, and be done. And if I get a discount, they they move even closer. So I think. For whatever reason, the price of entry into Hublot is massively inflated. Their mm. their entry level watches are really trading on their name and the and everything else that the big ones are doing. But if you're prepared to make that next step up to a thirty thousand dollar watch, suddenly they they start to make more sense. Yeah, that's when an Hublot starts to sort of. I'm not going to ever say a thirty three thousand dollar Hublot is a sensible buy, but it starts to kind of enter the well, realm. It just makes more sense relatively. I think this is all relative, you know. So if yeah. you're comparing the entry level uh Big Bang, or sorry, Classic Fusion at, at you know between 11 to 20,000 depending on material and then you can look at the chronographs for say a 25% over, um that starts to look pretty good, right? So from a movement perspective. The one thing that Chrono that that Cubo has done very well is their use of materials, their higher materials. So they do very well with coloured ceramics, which we're looking at on the screen right now, which only really IWC and Zenith um, kind of participate in, in any real kind of way. Uh, and then they're moving into their sapphire style cases and all that kind of stuff. That's when they really shine. So, you know, they, they, they've made a number of full sapphire cased watches, which is extremely hard to do, um, which will actually segue into our next thing that we're going to look at uh, you know, in a really nice way. But just while we're talking about materials, I think there is something to say, you know, and everyone has different thoughts about this, but does anyone actually think um, the difference in material is worth potentially triple, quadruple the price? I mean, taking precious metals out of it, obviously, because uh, there is intrinsic value in gold, there's intrinsic value in platinum. Um, but let's say, for example, going from a stainless steel watch to a titanium watch, is that worth a 30% price jump? Yeah, it's no. In a word, right? no. Uh, the titanium would cost marginally more, but not a great deal more. Depending on the grade of titanium, uh, it will take more effort to finish. You'll probably be making less of them, so your return on investment on the, all the machining and everything will be a little bit less. Does that add up to a 30% price difference, which is not uncommon in the in the marketplace? No, I don't think so. Um Certainly not for grade two, maybe for grade five, because it's so much harder to, to work with. And there's like one or two, I think Blancpont might have made one out of like type 23. Yeah, that's the grade, one I'm wearing right now, type grade 23. Grade yeah. 23, suitable for use in surgical <laughs> yeah. surgical uh, implants. If my watch ever gets anywhere near a surgical situation, <laughs> I think uh, it's all over. Yeah, but yeah, I think... I think there is a certain premium, and like I have no idea. I would love to. I've actually tried to. Um, I've reached out to some case makers. I've reached out to some people that work with metallics and asked questions about you know where do they get their steel from and what are all these different questions. And so, what I have found is I just don't get responses. No one. 
I don't have the resources to chase that down. I would love to see someone like Hadinki chase this topic because people will actually answer their emails. Yeah. But I have no idea. You know, like once things actually hit a watch factory, how much harder is it to make a sapphire as opposed to a, a steel case? Um, I think I think I, mean, I think sapphire has probably a. Would, I'm assuming, and I don't have the statistics, but I would guess it has a relatively higher uh, failure number so as in you know let's say they make out of a million sapphire cases hypothetically they might lose a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand but they probably wouldn't do that with steel but i think the material that really gets me the most uh, in terms of value is carbon okay so now carbon is i mean it's not always exactly like this but for all intents and purposes it's essentially plastic um especially like when they say recycled uh, carbon or, or something like that. It, it's essentially just plastic. So, uh, you know, and, and those will sometimes be double the price of a steel watch. Um, now, carbon, is, there's a lot of very great things going for it. It's very light. Um, it has an extreme amount of rigidity for its for its price. Um, it's, it's relatively scratch resistant, but it will crack like ceramic. It will just snap. And there is no fixing a carbon case. Um, the whole thing has to be replaced. Uh, there's no, it's basically no fixing a ceramic case. The whole case has to be replaced. Uh, whereas steel, yes, it's, it's heavy and yes, it's not exotic, but if you ding it, um, well, usually the worst that will happen is it'll have a ding. Um, it's unlikely to just crack in half or, or break. Uh, and if the ding's not that bad, you can spot weld it and polish over. And most of the time you'll never even know. So it is interesting. So, I mean, look, I mean, I think it's a whole topic on this, but, you know, what, what do you guys think? Do you think that do you think that these different materials, maybe when they first came out, the cost would have been astronomical, right? Because there's R and D on making carbon, um, working with carbon, uh, you know, uh, working with titanium, figuring out what's the best alloy, um, and there are a lot of companies that make their own versions of alloys, which is then even more difficult to put a value on. So, like uh, Chopard uses um, Lucent A two two, three steel or something like that, which is they smelt that metal themselves, right? So Chopard actually smelt their own metals. They smelt their own gold. So there's a hell of a lot of work there. So, you know, kudos to them. But most companies don't. You know, they have an external case manufacturer, uh, like you were saying, uh, which they basically give the spec for, pass the design on, and, and give them the spec of what they need built. So in that, in that situation, it's not even them shouldering the R&D cost most of the time. It's the external company shouldering it. Um, and so I, I do really struggle to see the justification behind it. Maybe it's just a case of, well, we can and people will pay. I was going to say, right. well, I mean, welcome, that simple. welcome to capitalist economies. Yeah. It's yeah. like, we'll, we'll set a price, you'll pay it or you won't. You yeah. know, it's um, maybe the idea of thinking that there's a, there's a value prop, there's a cost in there that's got any relationship to the price is beside the point. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Um, the, the issue around materials and material choices is, it's really fascinating to me. It's the engineer in me coming out. Uh, I must admit, I was really intrigued by the, remember the RLX titanium that they were using in that big, you know, um, Rolex with their new ultra oh, super yes, deep yes, thing, yes, they yes, call yes, that. Yes, yeah, and yeah. then they, they had a little throwaway line at the bottom. It's a grade five titanium. Um, that got me curious, and I wrote off to a whole bunch of case makers asking about steel. And um, do they just do they when when 
for them is all, and I actually asked specifically around 316L steel, is all 316L the same? You know, whether it comes from a Chinese foundry or whether it comes from like a boutique German foundry or whatever. And I got no answers from any of the 20 people I asked for, except for one. One guy um, whose name I cannot recall off the top of my head, but I will in the show notes put a link to their site because he was very happy for people to go look. He's a third-party um, case maker that makes cases for a whole bunch of people. He's also associated with Serica. Um, oh, right. okay. and, and with them, he's, he make, they make all their cases. He was, his email back to me was, they don't use Chinese steel um, because... What they find is it is inconsistent um, and may not have been heat treated as as well as you would think. The grains might not be exactly what you would normally expect to see in 316L steel. Um, you can't necessarily be sure that what you did on one batch is going to work on the next batch, is going to work on the next batch. And they also said that... Um, you can tend to see, if you get really close, like a lot of watch geeks do, you can actually see some problems in the steel. So he was saying they pretty much only use uh, German steels for their cases, which is a really interesting thing. I remember I was talking to uh, Nicholas from Fears Watches once, and he made the comment that once you've been in the trade for a while, you can pretty much look at a case and know where it came from right. simply by the way the the polishing and the, the brushing works. I've, As I said, I've really been fascinated by that idea and I've tried to chase it further. I just can't. No one answers my emails. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I bet there's probably a bit of trick of the trade stuff that they don't want to share, but I think it is, yeah, it's certainly interesting. I mean, it's, it's something that I think, you know, we as watch collectors, we don't really think too much about cases um, i think we think about case shape um i think we broadly think about case material but like you say whether it's 316 from china 316 from germany 316 from you know japan whatever i don't think anyone i mean certainly none of the watch brands advertise any of that to any extent um maybe because they don't even want you to know that they don't make the cases in the first place um because you know most of that is outsourced not in all situations but a lot of it um but i think the other thing that is interesting is that we focus a lot on um, we focus most of our watch collectors on movements and dials, bracelets and stuff like that. Um, and we never really question, you know, the minutiae of the detail around where all that stuff comes from. So, you know, I think there is definitely, it's definitely a topic to have a, to find out some more information from, uh, you know, regarding at some point. So I think all this case material leads us to the next release that we, that we thought we'd talk about today, which is the lovely... Girard Perigot L'Oreal Absolute Light and Fire. So there's a couple of versions of these in different colors, I believe. Um, yeah, the other one's the Light and Shade, which is the dark, smoky, gray right. one. Uh, okay. Firstly, I'd like to say that I really like this watch. Uh, I have owned an Absolute uh, TI, um, uh, which was fantastic, amazing uh, watch. It finished beautifully um, and amazing strap with the built-in um, clasp micro adjust which just take note every single watch brand out there take note that having a built-in micro adjust on a clasp is a on a strap so not just on a bracelet on a strap is a game changer okay so uh, because for the purpose of not breaking through holes you have to have like a minimum four to six mil distance sort of between uh, holes in the strap otherwise you'll start wearing through one and break through to the other so 
you know, there's a definitely a, a thing there. But then that means, for me at least, I'm always in between holes on my straps, always. So it'll be super loose in the morning, uh, but then by about midday, lunchtime, if I go to the gym, it'll be tight again. But if I make it one hole bigger, it's loose again, right? So it's so difficult. Um, but the GP's done a fantastic job in integrating a micro adjust into a rubber strap, uh, or you know, which is fantastic, or a canvas strap. But this watch is made in... Uh, now, I think this website we're looking at is a bit of a typo because it says the case material is titanium, but it's obviously not. Um, so it's obviously a, 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 a sapphire crystal of some description um, in a lovely red color, open work, skeleton movement. Look, it's beautiful. But then I look at the price, $99,600 USD. So that's about $130,000 Australian. Um, and there was only 18 pieces. So I'm never going to have the chance to probably buy one. Uh, and uh, even if I could, I probably don't have the money to afford it. But super, super cool watch. And when we talk about materials, um, I think there's nothing cooler, not necessarily practical, but nothing cooler than a completely see-through sapphire watch. I think that's the epitome of modern horology to me. I, yeah, and that's a really interesting point you raise there. It's something I'd love to go into one day. What are the boundaries of horology? Is horology purely like movement based or you know does it include does high horology include using materials uh for case materials and things um, topic for another day absolutely love this watch not only i'm going to go further not only am i not ever probably going to buy this i suspect i will never even see one of these um oh, there's 36 if you include the gray one 36 of these in the entire world yeah. oh my gut feel I don't know how GP works. I don't know if they've got this kind of community, but my gut feel is at least half of these were probably sold before they even made it on the market. They probably have a bunch of people. I mean, don't forget, we're talking 36 people in the whole world. Yeah, and they, GP's, GP's an interesting brand in that respect because they don't make many watches. Yeah. So they're very low volume. They make a few thousand watches a year. Um, and then on top of that, uh, GP's also a relatively fringe brand I mean, i would still consider it i mean being in australia we we don't have a lot of choice when it comes to micro brands and um independents right um, in terms of getting them locally and seeing them locally so i consider that any any brand that i can walk into a store somewhere in australia um and see and buy that brand i consider them to be mainstream for us okay so uh and gpr would consider mainstream for us because you can get them at at uh, the hourglass it's exclusively at the hourglass now it used to be at a few other um stores but but only the hourglass has them now so i do consider them mainstream so i would say that um out of all the mainstream brands that you can get here they would probably be one of if not the lowest production of all of them but um you know it's it's also another interesting brand because i think prior to 2021 it was never coveted, right? I mean, there was a few people that liked the brand, um, you know, and the Laureato was always one of their best sellers. But since 2021, since COVID, the value, uh, a, a, the value retention, but B, the retail value of Laureatos have skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, you used to be able to get these for about 8,000 Australian on the secondary market, which is, you know, five and a half, 6,000 US, which is dirt cheap now. Um, and retail for them was about 13, 14,000. Now, a standard three-handed GP in the large size and the 42 uh, stainless steel 
is touching $20,000 Australian. Um, and don't get me wrong, I still think that's okay value for what you get, right? Extremely well done watch. But now it's out of the price range of a lot of people that are looking. And there's a lot, once again, talking about the Hublot before, at 20000 you have a lot of options, right? You have a lot of options at 20000 um, for sports watches. Yeah. Uh, you could get yourself a fantastic three-watch, fantastic three-watch collection for, for $20,000. Um, and that would feature some heavy hitters. Like you could get an Amiga Speedmaster. You could get a Seamaster. And you could get a, you know, a nice... Um, dress watch as well from a you know long jeans or something like that for under twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, it's an interesting question when you start talking about and and this is where I was saying there's like a lot of these big brands have got their super collectors, the people that they really love, uh, that that are really in touch with the brand, that go and visit the brand and do all those sorts of tour things, um, and a lot of them just they get offered these watches and sometimes these watches are made like for them. Mm. Um, and so it could well, but that's why I was saying it's, it's possible half of these have been claimed already. They were yep. before they were even built, they were claimed by some super collectors, very likely, uh, which is you know why they get the prices that they do. I would like to see one, I think. I think I just like to handle one touch, and I think it's very cool. I've actually never, I don't think in my life, ever touched a, ever really handled a full sapphire case kind of watch um i have seen a full sapphire case i've handled a full sapphire case hublot okay um, impressive? it's insane yeah it's very cool. <laughs> and for me the weird part is when you turn the watch on the side and you're looking through the side at the side of the movement it's just yeah amazing super cool i mean like i said i'd love to see one um it's definitely out of the price range um but uh very cool i mean interestingly enough though i think see this is where I think limited editions actually make sense. Oh yeah, because you, you're 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 selling something that is so niche, right? It's it, it's obviously it's a niche brand with a niche product and a niche variation of that product uh, at an extremely niche price. Um, so I think having a limited actually makes a lot of sense, and it's probably more of a demonstration of capability. Yeah, I think than it is. I think limited editions. You know? Yeah, limited editions. Another whole topic for another day. I think they work best in certain categories, all of which don't involve us feeling like it's a cash grab. I think limited editions work really well um, when it's really experimental. When yeah. none of us are thinking, none of us know is this going to work or not. You know, it kind of makes sense that they're going to limit that. I think limited editions work well when. It is horrendously expensive, and the brand, frankly, wants to minimise the risk that it's going to yeah, have yeah, all yeah. this leftover, yeah. leftover um, inventory of hundred thousand dollar watches. I mean, that's pretty nasty to think about. Yeah, especially when you're not a big, um, when you're not a big um, manufacturer. Um, when your management just bought the company with yeah, borrowed yeah, money. Yeah, so so I think you know, there's definitely you know, keeping this limited makes sense. I, I absolutely love it. Uh, probably my favourite release so far. Of this year that that I've kind of seen, um, and I think that's probably. I mean, there, there's a couple of tags that we we talk. We'll go talk about very very quickly. Um, there's a new tag, uh, Monza, uh, in in carbon fiber. So, you know, it's twenty thousand dollars Australian, fourteen fifteen thousand dollars USD. Uh, good looking watch, I think. I really quite like the Tag Heuer Caliber O2. I think it's a really good movement uh, flyback. But twenty thousand dollars for a non-precious metal chronograph from Tag. 
jury's out on whether or not that's good value. I don't think it really is. Um, I really quite like the Monza line. I think it has a lot of uh, history behind it. But for $20,000, once again... It does feel like a stretch, doesn't it? It does feel like... A, especially because you can get the standard Monza for like less than half of that price. Yeah, it does. Uh, this is, which is this, more historically correct, obviously. Yeah, and this is the watch that inspired our conversation earlier about uh, carbon and materials yeah. and, and what you're willing to pay. I, this is one of those watches where if it was... I'm not going to be one of those people who says, you know, you could get the look for 500 bucks. I think that's... I, I, I'm not that guy. But I'm with you. I look at this watch and think, is that fourteen thousand US? Is that twenty thousand dollars I'm spending? And you know, go back to the Laureato. Um, in a strange way, from a specs basis, this is probably a superior watch to a Laureato. But I'll take the Laureato every day of the week. Yeah. And you know what? There'd be the worst part is when you start talking about buying a twenty thousand dollar watch. The reality is most most of those people have probably got 10 watches. So it's not like one versus the other. But the problem is I could probably name 10 watches that are ahead of that one on the list. Yeah, and I think the other issue with it is that, that you know, watch collectors, we understand that carbon is an expensive uh, case material to buy. But the rest of the world who are not watch collectors, if you showed them that watch, they, so, they'd probably go, why is it so light? Is it made out of plastic? Yeah. And realistically you could get all uh, indignant about it but the answer would be really kind of yes it is yeah. mostly made of plastic and interestingly <laughs> the monza flyback chronograph is not limited edition it's a core member of their their uh their their range well i think it's gonna be limited by the number they can sell which won't be many i don't that's, think that's and um, flip that flip that around same company um but interestingly this time not tagging itself Sorry for that pun. <laughs> Not selling themselves as good. Tag it's Hoyer, but now as just Hoyer would be the Hoyer Corona Hoyer Carrera Chronograph 60th Anniversary Edition. So this is now just going back to the original Hoyers, giving us what, in my mind, is a pretty boring, pretty vanilla, mid-20th century uh what three register chronograph. Okay, so I like I quite like this because I I actually think this is a uh this was a great era for Hoyer. I mean, obviously this was pre the merge, so really Tag had nothing to do with this watch yeah. uh, at all. Um, but uh, I think this is really nice. Actually, a friend of mine uh, bought one actually, um, and I saw a picture of it in, in the flesh. Uh, well, I saw a picture of it on his flesh, uh, should I say, um, <laughs> yesterday, and really attractive uh, sort of reverse panda w uh, watch. Um, or is that, or, or is it a pen? I'm not really sure how that. I always get work. that mixed up. Yeah, I don't know. It's some sort of black black sub dials on a silver dial. It's it's a good size, 39 mil, fantastic size for pretty much everybody. Um, you know, same Hoyer O2 movement, but without the skeleton. Uh, it's in stainless steel, so you're not going to feel like you're wearing a, a plastic bag on your wrist. Um, and it's less than half the price. Oh no, sorry, it's just on half the price of the uh, of the Monza. Now, I look at, the, and it's limited to 600 pieces. Uh, now, that being said, I'm not sure if that really means anything because Hoya have released, Tag have released a number of these Carrera watches that all kind of look the same. So, you know, whether they're actually limited on paper or not, I don't know if that matters. But uh, 7.5 US, so call it 10,000, probably 11,000 Australian, give or take 12,000 with GST. I mean, 
it's not the worst value watch we've seen no, today. In fact, <laughs> you know, but... No, no. In fact, this price at this this watch, um, you know, what is it? Ninhouse flyback chronograph, um, classic mid-century design, solid, you know, comes from the brand that made it originally, all that sort of stuff. Great size. Nice size. You know what? It is bang in the range. You know, if you look at the competitors to this, it'd be something like the Breitling Premiers, which are pretty much exactly the same price. Speedmaster, about the same price. Speedmaster, about the same price. And not limited, mind you. Yep. Um, For me, the interesting thing is tag and lvmh them you know as a group are so intensely commercial they don't do anything with it every decision they make there's a reason why the head honcho is currently the the richest richest man man in the the world world. i mean you know he's they didn't get there from making poor financial decisions that's right and so it says something to me that they limit this one to 600 pieces but that fourteen thousand dollar you know uh carbon one is not limited it's almost like they think, Tag Heuer thinks they're going to struggle to sell this one, but they can make as many of the, the carbon ones as they want. I mean, it could also be that they just can't make many of the carbon ones in the first instance. It Maybe could, there's a limited case it could be availability that. or something. Yeah, it, it could just be, yeah, not so much. We don't have to limit that. You know, well, that's what Omega does now. We don't have a limited edition. We just don't make many. Yeah, and we've just got limited, uh, yeah, limited production, which... I hate that term limited production because what they're basically saying is we will make as many as there is demand for, which kind of makes good commercial sense, but it's kind of annoying because as a collector, there is some cachet to having a limited edition watch, particularly a numbered limited edition. Um, You know, so when it says one of X, um, there is a bit of, I mean, there's a cachet to that in any collecting in a hobby where you're collecting things, right? Because it, it shows that you have a you know a, a, a one of a of a x number of pieces but when they say limited uh, production um, which is essentially only limited by demand um, you don't know where you stand it's a it's, right? a it's a tricky one because it's sort of it depends on as a collector if I would, I'd put it this way if I was able to get one of the numbered ones I'd prefer a numbered one if I didn't get one of the numbered ones and I still really wanted the watch, I want the limited production, which lets me get one eventually. So I think it's really a case of whether I, whether I, whether I really wanted the watch and whether I got in on that first one or not. Um, so it's a, I kind of can see both ways. There we go. Um, and on that note, um, I think we're about ready to wrap it up. So we've gone through some of the releases that have come out so far this year, but we're only not even one month in, so there's going to be plenty more to come, uh, especially at Watches and Wonders later this year. So, I mean, you know, what do you, what are you guys hoping to see this year? Is there a particular model that you would like to see brought back uh, in terms of a reissue? Is there any particular uh, improvements you'd like to see to your favourite model? Maybe you want to see a new colorway for a particular model maybe you like to see a model get slimmed down uh personally for me i would really really love to see the tudor black bay diver line uh slimmed up a little you know i, I like the 41 case size i think it's a great size for my seven and a quarter inch wrist but i would like to see them be a little bit less chunky so maybe something around the 13 mil 12 to 13 mil similar closer to a palagos fxd or a um or a uh, Black Bay 58, uh, something just to make them a little bit less tubby on the wrist. Um, 
Pete, what would you like to see this year? I'm really hoping for something that's been rumoured. So I'm trying to make 2023 the year of quartz for me. Oh, okay. So I'm going to see how I go, see if I can do nothing but buy quartz watches for a whole year. Um, I have heard that there is a new Breitling Aerospace coming. I am putting my pennies away, getting ready for that. Hopefully it comes. Hopefully I like it. Hopefully it's reasonably interesting. Um, so that's what I'm hoping for this year. Okay. And on a lot that of hope note, in there. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I quite like the aerospace too. I think it's a great uh, Breitling piece. Um, but on that note, we're off. Um, hope you enjoyed this show and we'll see you next week. See you later. Thank you. Bye. I must...